you know, you hear the announcement, it comes through, or you read it in a bulletin or whatever, and they say discipleship class, you know. And, um, and, and by and large, what we do, we have an hour, what we do is we get into the Word of God. And, uh, and our intent, obviously, whenever we do that, is to learn and to hear from God and, and, and all the rest. But uh, the real purpose behind that and behind what we're doing is that we would grow, that we want to grow closer to God. We want to grow uh, spiritually strong. We want to um, be servants of His and not just hearers of the Word and, and those that know things about God, but we want it to then translate into what we do. And so um, just to sow that into your mind at the onset, that that is ultimately the aim. You know, the Bible uh, warns us constantly about just being hearers, those that just know things. And 2 Timothy, it talks about the last days Christians, and it says that uh, as God looks at it, he looks at the whole spectrum uh, of the church in the last days, and what he says about it is he says that they have a form of godliness, but they deny the power of it. That they're ever learning, but they're never really coming into the knowledge of the truth. And, and so what that tells us is that it's possible for us to be learning, uh, but not growing. It's possible for you to come here or come to church or even read your Bible and have daily devotionals. But if it's just information that's being imparted into our heads, but it isn't sinking into our hearts and then coming out in our walk and in our daily lives, then it's not profiting us. And it says in Hebrews, it says that the word that was preached to the Old Testament you know, children of Israel, it didn't profit them because it wasn't mixed with faith. And so there's more to, to this than just the learning aspect. Although we spend uh, our time learning, uh, may God grant that our, our uh, result is that it gets into our lives, and that it comes out in the way that we serve, and the way that we know Him, that our prayer lives are increasing, that, that as we read the Word of God, it's, it's devotional, that there's a, an attachment to His person, uh, and that we're discovering His purpose for our lives, and then living that out uh, with Him while we walk through the world. And so that's our intent behind um, doing what we're doing here, and, and I hope that um, we're learning to follow and serve and, and all the rest. Another thing um, that I would encourage you, at least for, for this meeting, I mean, we do a lot of Bible study at the church, we have our services and different things that we're involved in, but at least for this, if I could encourage you, and it's not required, but if I could encourage you to get your hands on a King James Bible uh, for this class. Maybe it's not the Bible that you read primarily. It's not the one that, that you use and you're comfortable with. Um, but, but if you have one or have access to one, um, I think you'll find that beneficial for a couple reasons. First of all, just practically, because that's what I use. You know, so it helps when you're following along that you're seeing exactly the same thing um, that I'm reading uh, and, and the second reason is, is this, is that because, although there is value in, in, in the Bible, whatever translation that you're looking at, I personally believe, and I'll argue, I'll, I'll stay, I won't argue, I'll stand on this, is that I believe that there's more value for us as Christians in the King James Bible than any other English translation uh, that exists out there. And, and the reason why I believe that is, first of all, because I've seen it in my own walk and devotion, having used other translations throughout <laughs> Um, but, but, but when the translators of the King James, when they put it together, uh, what their intent and their mindset was, was to bring, bring accuracy to every word that God put down in the Bible. And they, that, that meant that accuracy to each word was more important to them than readability 
And it was more important to them than trying to communicate what they thought that the thought that God was trying to get across was. Uh, and, and those two things are extremely important because God is into details. Jesus said that not one jot or tittle will depart from the word until all things be fulfilled. The jot is like the period at the end of a sentence. A tittle is a punctuation, like a comma or an apostrophe. You know, and so God pays attention to the minutest detail of his word, and he holds whole doctrines to, to their strength, to their weight, based upon whether a word is plural or singular. Like in Galatians, when it talks about the seed of Abraham. Paul says it doesn't say seeds, it says seed. And the difference is that seed means Christ, not his descendants at large. And so the accuracy of the small things makes a difference in our understanding uh, as it relates to the things of God. And because in a class like this we go a little bit deeper, um, it's important. I, I feel like it'll benefit you uh, to have that. You know? and, and even this morning, the scripture that we're going to go through uh, in the King James, I, I know that there's going to be things you're going to be like, whoa, 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 whoa. You know? um, God gave us word for word what he wanted us to have. Um, and it isn't, it isn't wise for a Bible translator to ever um, impose their interpretation on a text and then translate it according to what they think it means and paraphrase it. You know? And so that's just for, for you uh, in that. Another thing is probably wise for you to have a notebook um, because you know, there's going to be times when you'll want to write things down. Um, and, and I'm hoping, guys, this is aside from that, that you know, I'm hoping that, that each of you, if you don't have already... Um, that, that you will develop a, a very consistent devotional life. And, and what I mean by that is that uh, daily time that you spend um, in, in verbal prayer with God and, and, uh, and time in His Word, letting His Word saturate your hearts. I, I cannot say enough how uh, essential that is in our Christian walk, is that that be a daily part of our life and it be a priority. Just that, and not, I'm not talking about listening to what, you know, a sermon or a teaching or just sitting quietly or just reading alone. I'm saying verbal conversation with God and, and time in His Word on a daily basis. You know, I, I do not know how it's possible to grow uh, closer to the Lord without that, no matter how many other things that you do. That is absolutely essential. We see Jesus doing it. Morning by morning, He would separate time uh, between Him and His Father and for prayer and obviously for even study of the Word of God, even in the life of the Son of God, to be in the Word of God. He is the Word of God, and yet He's taking time in the Word of God uh, daily. And, and so if I, at that very onset of this, is if these things can grip our heart, that this is our purpose, we want to grow closer to God. We don't want to know more. We don't want to be learned. We don't want to be students. That produces Pharisees. But we want to know Him. We want to know Christ. We want to know His person. We want to walk with Him day by day, moment by moment, and then let that translate into who we are in every area of our lives. You know, that's our intent, and that's our purpose. Um, and so with that, let's uh, open up our Bibles this morning to 1 Peter chapter 1. We are going to... Um, get into the life of Abraham uh, as we progress. But this morning, I want to 
just take the opportunity as we're coming back from summer break, and many of you I see here for the first time, to uh, get some vision in terms of our objective, what it means to be a disciple of Christ. And so we're in First Peter this morning, and let's um, just pray right now and uh, ask God to, to speak to us. And so, Father, we know that you've overheard, and, um, and we're asking, Lord, that you would continue with us here this morning. I believe, Lord, that you've called each one of us aside uh, for this purpose and this time, Lord, that we would hear uh, the Word of God, that we would hear your heartbeat, Lord, that we would be challenged, that each one of us would uh, receive from you, Lord, orders, marching orders. We ask, Lord, that you would open up our hearts, and we open them before you right now. We pray, Father, that you would do surgery within us, that you would expose the things that are there that shouldn't be, and, uh, and that you would reprove us, Lord, for the things that aren't there that should be. And we um, commit ourselves to you, Lord Jesus. We pray that you'd forgive us right now, Lord. Wash us clean of anything that's in us, Lord, any iniquity, any sin, any transgression. And we pray, Father, that you would look at us as your sons, Lord, that you see us as your sons, and that you would grow us up like a father trains his children, Lord. And so bless this time, and we pray that you would give us ears this morning, Father, just to hear what you would speak to us through your word. And we thank you for your precious Holy Spirit, and for the blood of Jesus that washes our sins. And it's in his name that we ask these things. Amen. The Apostle Peter was one of the first four that were called by Jesus into a full-time apprenticeship for the sake that he would then become one of the twelve apostles that would be the pillars or the foundation upon which Jesus would build his church. And for Peter, he had a unique privilege amongst even those twelve. And that privilege was not that he would just be the one that would be the spokesman on the day of Pentecost or any of the other things that Peter did. But the privilege that I speak of this morning is that he uniquely of those twelve was actually told or shown by Jesus the blueprint for his life at the very beginning of his relationship with the Lord. The very first thing that happened in Peter's life when Jesus saw him for the first time, it says that Jesus beheld him, he looked at him, he examined him through and through. And the first words out of Jesus' mouth to Peter is he said that you are Simon, but you shall be Peter, or Petras. You are shifting sand, but you shall be stable stone. And that was the word that Jesus spoke to Peter, first beholding him for the first time. And as we have the privilege of both looking at his life through the Gospels as it's communicated to us, and then reading the letters that he wrote, and the things that he communicated to the Christians and to the churches in First and Second Peter, what we examine is how that blueprint went from undone to completed. How he went from shifting sand, unstable one, to solid, rocky, you know, so to speak. How that happened within his life. Now, yes, that was told and communicated to Peter uniquely, but what we understand is that that is the will of God for every one of our lives is that that's the blueprint. If you look at it from the bird's eye, heaven's view, what God wants to do in every one of our lives is He wants to bring us from what we are when we're dead in our trespasses and sins to what He can make us into once we've lived a life 
uh, in his presence and allowed him to do his work and is changing us into what we're called to be and what we're supposed to be. And that's essentially what the purpose of discipleship is. That's what it means to be a disciple. It means to walk with him and grow in him during our time and lives here so that we can change from what we were to what it is that he wants to make us and into the image that he wants to recreate us in, in Christ Jesus. And so Peter, having gone through those changes, going from what he was to what he would become, towards the end of his life, he communicates now to Christians. And he was an apostle, yes, absolutely, very truly. He was also an evangelist. We see him winning many souls to Christ. But underneath all of that, he had the heart of a pastor. And that is that he looked at the lives of Christians, as he looked at the lives of young believers, of newer believers, of people that hadn't been in the faith as long as him. His desire was that they would come into the same fullness in their knowledge of Christ that he himself had come into. And that's the heartbeat that pulses through the pages of First and Second Peter. It's written to Christians... And what it is, it's Peter's testimony to them of these are the things that make us disciples. These are the things that take us from unstable to stable. From sand to rock. From unsanctified to sanctified. From unholy to holy. These are those things. And so that's what the um, epistles, the letters that Peter wrote are peppered with as he goes through. And so we're going to overview 1 Peter looking at choice passages that tie together Peter's purpose and thus communicating to us what God wants to do within our lives. Notice in verse 1, it says Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And so, in the very first verse, he basically addresses himself to them, and then he addresses his audience and draws their attention to himself. And his audience, he says, are those strangers that have been scattered throughout, at that time, what was the Roman Empire. Now, the history of that is that after the church had begun in Jerusalem, there arose, after a period of time, a persecution against the church that was so strong that in order just to stay alive, the Christians had to leave Jerusalem and spread out throughout the Roman Empire just to survive. Now, on the one hand, that looked extremely tragic, but on the other hand, it was the plan of God to spread the fire of his message throughout the known world at the time. Because what started in Jerusalem then as a blazing bonfire, then moved throughout the empire and started new fires and new churches in different areas. Peter himself stayed behind. The apostles didn't leave Jerusalem when that persecution came. And so now Peter, towards the end of his life, having seen those that had been scattered throughout, he writes to them. But the word for strangers that Peter uses there is uh, literally, or you could translate it, sojourners, or travelers, or pilgrims. You could tra- the word means the same thing. So, though in a literal sense, it's speaking to those that have been scattered throughout the empire, in a spiritual and more far-reaching sense, it's speaking even to you and I. Because the Bible says, and it says it in Peter, we'll read the verse this morning, that you and I are sojourners 
or strangers or pilgrims in this world right now wherein we live. You and I that have given our lives to Christ, when we came to Him and the covenant was made between us and heaven and our sins were forgiven, we instantly became citizens living abroad. That's what we are now. This is not our home. We're headed for home. We're passing through. And so that's who Peter is addressing throughout this letter. He's addressing people that are citizens of another kingdom, but they're away from home living abroad. And that's what we are within this world. That's his audience. Then he describes what they are. In verse 2, he says, elect, or chosen ones. It's important for us to understand that we have been chosen by God. Now this creates a stumbling block for many. Because the question that continues to reverberate and echo through the walls of the church from earliest times even till today is, did I choose him or did he choose me? Because by all reason that I can conjure within myself, it seems that I chose him. But yet the Bible says in more than one place that we're elected by him and he chose us. So which is it? Did he choose me or did I choose him? The answer is both. You say, well, how does that work? And, you know, honestly, I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know, but the best I can give you is what Peter says next. Notice what he says. He says, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, foreknowledge, what that means is that God foreknows everything that's going to take place before it happens. My daughter, Sarah, um, she just in the past couple of weeks has become immersed in her Bible. I think she's just going through something uh, and she's just been reading her Bible constantly. And she came to me last night and she said, Dad, Isaiah 53. I'm like, oh, she's reading Isaiah 53. She's 10 years old, you know. But Isaiah 53, it's that amazing passage that talks about the crucifixion of Christ. It talks about how he stood before his sheep, you know, dumb. That for He was bruised for our transgressions, for our iniquities. It's a prophecy of Jesus going to the cross on our behalf. And she says, Dad, that's speaking of Christ, right? And I said, yeah. She says, why is it spoken in the past tense? She says, why is it on the past tense if Jesus hadn't come yet? And I said, that's a great question, Sarah. And I thank God I have the answer for you. Here's the answer. Because the Bible says that Jesus is a lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. Meaning that before God even made Adam, he had already known and determined not only what was going to happen with man falling, but how he was going to redeem man through the death of his son. And God is so successful in everything that he endeavors to do, that if he determines to do something and says that he's going to do it, it's as good as done before it's done. And that's why the Bible says that he calls those things that aren't as though they are. Because though it hasn't been done yet, if God says he's going to do it, he's going to do it. And that's why it's spoken of in the past tense. Because in God's mind, in Isaiah chapter 53, it was already done, even though the action hadn't been accomplished yet. Because God has foreknowledge. That's what foreknowledge is. It's knowing ahead of time what he's going to do. So how does foreknowledge translate into our election or are being chosen. Here's how, to the best of my understanding, and I don't understand it perfectly, is that he knows that everyone will receive an opportunity to choose him. And in his foreknowledge, he knows who will. 
He knows who will receive and who will not. And so election is coupled with foreknowledge, and the outcome is salvation. Charles Spurgeon said it like this. He said, it's as though you're passing through an archway, and on one side of the archway, over the top, are the words, whosoever will, let him come. And on that side, it's our choice, because we're choosing to go through the archway. But as you pass through it and turn around and look, on the reverse side of that archway are the words written, Behold, I have chosen you from the foundation of the world. The same archway carries both, my choice and his choosing me. And so Peter says that we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, he immediately begins to bring us into what it is that we've been chosen for. What it is that we've been saved from and saved unto. Why did he choose us? What are we elected to? What's the purpose of this choice of God? He says, through, listen, sanctification of the Spirit. Now, the word sanctification, that's a King James word. It's a Bible word. We don't use that word uh, in everyday life anymore. But what the word literally means, to be set apart. And in the context of God, it means to be set apart unto Him and His holiness. And so what Peter is saying is that what God chose us for, and what we chose Him for, and what happens to us when we get saved, is that we are immediately separated from this world. As I already said, from citizenship to this world from partnership within this world, from allegiance in this world, and we are now His personal property. We belong to Him, we're citizens of His kingdom, and we're set apart for Him. There's a separation that takes place. And we're going to see that that's a key, key message that Peter is seeking to impart to us through his letter, is that we are separated, we are sanctified, And then that we are sanctified by the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, that does that sanctifying. Now, the Holy Spirit, because he mentions it in attachment to the sanctification, has basically three things that he does within our lives. And Peter's going to address them in the following verses. The Holy Spirit, first of all, brings illumination to us. And what that means is that the Holy Spirit is the one that awakens our conscience or brings the conviction of sin so that we can recognize that we're headed for hell and that hopefully there's another way. He brings illumination to make us seek after what might be true. That's the Holy Spirit that does that. Jesus said in John chapter 6 that no man can come to me except the Father draw him. And that's the Holy Spirit's work of illumination. When he comes alongside and he begins to unsettle us about what life is all about, where we're headed in life, you know, where we're going, what's the purpose of it. That's the Holy Spirit illuminating, bringing light to truth and error, to light and darkness, to death and life, to heaven and hell. That's the Holy Spirit's work, illumination. The second work of the Holy Spirit within our lives then, after we get saved, which Peter's going to address that too, because illumination is supposed to lead us to salvation, is, number two, renovation. And what renovation is, is now the work of the Holy Spirit conforming us into the image of Christ. He's the one that's making the changes on the inside. 
He's stripping us of the old nature that's after the flesh. And he's building now into our lives the new nature, which is recreated in Christ, that we reflect citizenship in heaven, the culture of heaven. That's renovation. And the number three, very important, is preservation. Is that it's the Holy Spirit that keeps us in the way and attached to Christ so that we don't drift and sway back into the world. We didn't save ourselves, and we couldn't, and we don't keep ourselves, and we can't. If it was up to us to do either one of those things, we would completely fall away, or never be saved at all. He saves us, and He keeps us. He who began a good work in you, Philippians 1.6, will be faithful to bring it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. He's the one who keeps us. Now, Peter is going to take that work of the Holy Spirit in sanctifying, separating us, and he's going to begin to elaborate on those three operations of the Spirit as he moves through. And so he says, sanctification of the Spirit unto, and so here's what he's sanctifying us for, unto obedience. So bringing us into alignment with the will of God and sprinkling of the blood of Christ. And that's purity. That's cleansing. We're cleansed through the blood of Christ. And so the Spirit is bringing us into obedience and He's bringing us into cleanliness. And those things are of the utmost importance. When um, Niagara Falls was harnessed, I don't know how many years ago it was, and um, Niagara Power Company, whatever that, that is, that um, uses, harnesses the power of Niagara Falls to create uh, electricity for much of the greater Buffalo area. They built this incredible generator, you know, the whole thing, and it wasn't working. And they had racked their brains and done everything that they could to um, figure out why it wasn't doing what it was supposed to do. And so at great expense, they finally brought in a brilliant scientist to review their work and to see the whole thing. And what he found after about 10 minutes of going through all their stuff is that they had one speck that was an eighth of an inch off in their machinery. One speck, an eighth of an inch off. And when they made that adjustment, they were able to harness the power of Niagara Falls. Now, in the spiritual realm, there is power that God has made available to us. There is transformation. There is a life in Jesus Christ that supersedes anything that we can do within ourselves. However, there is a law of the spirit of life. It says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1 and 2. There's a law of the spirit. And in order for the power of the spirit to work within our lives, it is absolutely essential that the specs be right. And that's why obedience is important. Because the Holy Spirit wants to work within us, and He will work within us. He doesn't discriminate. We're all accepted by God because of Christ, not because of ourselves. So God will work in any life, but He will not violate the laws through which He has determined to work. And the law through which He determines to work within our lives is obedience. And so as we surrender to His Lordship, and bring ourselves into obedience to His Word, we are enabling the power of the Holy Spirit to do its work within our lives. And that's why it's so important. He says, sanctified by the Spirit unto obedience and purity through the blood of Jesus Christ. And then, of course, the standard reading, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Now he gets right into it, and he begins with illumination or regeneration, verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy, 
And it's abundant mercy for God to do his work within our lives. Abundant is an understatement. I don't think that there is a word in any language that can be harnessed or employed uh, next to that word mercy that does justice to the amount of mercy that we have received, nor that it costs for God to work within our lives. But according to his abundant mercy, he has begotten us again unto a living hope. Now, if you have a King James, you can circle that, and right next to it, you can write, born again. Begotten means to be born, and again means again. <laughs> so what he's saying there is that by his abundant mercy, we have been born again. And that is absolutely an essential thing uh, when we consider what has happened to us. If we endeavor to be disciples, if we're ever to be disciples... You cannot be a disciple unless you have first been born again. That is absolutely necessary. What does it mean to be born again? The Bible teaches that when we came into this world, we came into this world separated from God. We were born in sin, we were alienated from Him, and we were enemies of Him. What that means is that at the very core, if you could, if you could look inside your being, the invisible you, and you could go to the depths, to the deepest place, if you can picture like a seed, and you go to the deepest part that determines what it is and what it will be and what comes out of it, at the deepest part we were nothing but vile, filthy, sinful wretches. That's it. There was no, some good, some bad. It didn't look like a yin-yang where there was white and black. And, you know, no, it was completely corrupted. If you could smell it, you would vomit. I mean, it, it, it is wickedness. That's what we are when we're born into this world. There's no compromise. There's no argument. God doesn't say, well, that one's not as wicked as wicked. Enemies. Sinful. Vile. That's what we are when we come into this world. And so that's what we were. But then what happens is that the Holy Spirit comes along, does His work of illumination, brings conviction, and He awakens us and makes us aware of the fact that that's what we are. And that's important. You cannot be born again without the conviction of sin. Without understanding that that's what's at the very core. Without seeing that I'm separated from God. Being born again is not a reformation. It's a transformation. That wicked core has to be changed. And so the awakening or the illumination of the Holy Spirit is that I see what I am at the deepest place... And I come to the conclusion that I'm a lost sinner alienated from God and that in myself there is no hope for me. That there's no amount of good works that I can try to produce on the outward limbs of my branches that will be acceptable before God because at the root there's still the filth and the vileness of what I am, which is a sinner. And so the Spirit quickens that awareness within us. That's called conviction. And then brings us to a place where we cry out to God for mercy because of what we are and our helplessness to do anything about ourselves. Now, I skipped the part where we hear the message of the, you know, the gospel and the Savior and salvation. I assume I'm talking to Christians here. You understand that part. But we hear that message, and it quickens hope within us. We come to God, and here's what God does when we pray that prayer, Romans 10, 9, and 10, that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. And when we pray that prayer of repentance, confession, acceptance of his gift, when we pray that prayer, here's what God does. 
is that he goes into that deepest part, the deepest part that no one can see, that you don't even understand yourself. And he pulls out what's vile, and he replaces it with himself. Now, that change is felt, because when you take something that vile out, and you replace it with something that pure, there's something that happens to the life. But the outward working of that change takes time. Just like if, if you were to take a seed or a fountain and change the very core, there's still work that's got to be done for the purifying of it. But the inside changes. That's what it means to be born again. We've been born again when the Spirit of God comes into our life, saves us, removes our sin, and places the righteousness of Christ within our lives. That's what it means. That's what happens. He says, you've been born again. By His mercy, He's begotten us again. Then unto, he says, a living hope. Um, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What we had before was a fading hope and a dying hope. There was no hope. It says, in fact, that before we knew Christ, we were without hope in the world, and our hope was fading. And you guys know what that's like. You know what it's like to be a child and have a world in front of you? you know, I'm going to be a major league ball player, or you know, I'm going to be the next president, or I'm going to be a king someday. Or you know, We have these th thoughts, and as we go through life, that hope fades. By the time we hit 20, we're like, well, maybe I'll be a manager. <laughs> maybe I'll be a commentator for ESPN. You know, we're still thinking high, you know. Then we hit 30, and we're like, all right, you know, Target's hiring. <laughs> and, 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 and no, but, but, but our lives change. It's a diminishing hope that happens in this world, because this world really offers none. But the hope that he gives is a living hope, because it's an, it's an everlasting hope. What he puts in us is a hope for everlasting life. What did they say to Jesus at the miracle when he changed the water into wine? Everyone puts out the best wine first and saves the worst for when everyone's drunk and doesn't care anymore. But you have saved the best for last. And that's always the work of Christ within our lives. Is that the best is last. It's what's coming. And so the hope that we have and what stirs us and what moves us is not for what he's making us in this world or for what will ever be in this world. We have turned our back on the world. Our living hope is in who he is and what he's done and where we're headed for. And so here's what that hope is, verse 4. Two, an inheritance, incorruptible and undefiled, that fades not away. The hope that we have, it can't be changed, it can't be tarnished, it can't be rusted out. And it doesn't fade and it's reserved in heaven for you. Just like what, what Jesus said to Peter when he first laid eyes on him. You are and you shall be. And when God speaks, it's done as though it was already completed. And when God looked at your life, he saw what you were and he saw what he was going to make you. And he doesn't fail. And so the hope that you have for what's reserved for you in heaven, both by way of place, that you'll have a place there, and reward has already been determined by him, and he's able to keep it. Do you understand? And that's why he says in verse 5, who are kept. There's the Holy Spirit's work of preservation. You see it? He preserves. You are kept by the power of God through faith, not through your works, not through your effort, not through your energy, but through faith, through your belief, unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. 
And so the Spirit has sanctified us. He has set us apart by, by illumination, then through renovation, being born again, being changed, and for preservation that He would keep us unto that day. That's what we have. We have a hope that's undefiled, reserved in heaven for us forever. Now Peter goes on from there. And notice now what he says next in verse uh, 6. He says, wherein, this work that God's doing in your life, you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations. In other words, we have this hope, we have new life, we've been separated But what do we do with the problem now of the sufferings that we endure in this life? The struggles, the questions, the mysteries, the things that we don't understand that are taking place within our lives. What do we do with all of those things? Peter now shifts directly into that to make sense of it, to make sense of our sufferings in light of God's purpose for our lives. What part do our sufferings play in God's purpose to change us from what we were to what we will be in making us disciples of Christ. Notice what he says about it, verse 7. He says that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found into the praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Now, pick it apart. Notice what it says. He says that the trial of your faith being much more precious than gold. Now, what's more precious than gold? The trial or the faith? The answer is the faith. Our faith is what's more precious than gold. But notice what he says is going to happen to that faith is that it's going to be tried. Or it's going to be tested. Or it's going to be refined. And the purpose of refining something or trying something or testing it is to make it of higher value or of greater quality than what it was at the beginning. That's the purpose of it. And so, you you take a lump of gold and you find it in your backyard while you're digging a foundation for a fence. You take that lump of gold and you bring it to a (coughs) refiner who heats it to whatever temperature he has to to bring it to a molten state. And what happens under the pressure of that heat is that the elements separate, and that which is valuable is compounded, and that which is worthless is also then risen to the top where it can then be removed. That's what it means to try something, to test it, to refine it. You're taking the precious part of it and bringing it into a greater concentration. And you're taking the waste of it and separating it so that it can be skimmed off. And what Peter is saying is, listen, there's going to be sufferings in this life while you're becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ. There's going to be temptation. There's going to be difficulty. There's going to be suffering and pain. But the reason for that is so that the precious can be separated from the vile, and that the value of the precious can be concentrated and increased. That's the purpose of what God is going to do within your life. And so it's a precious thing that you would have that happen within your life. Now for the rest of the chapter, verses 8 through 12, which we're not going to read, he summarizes why our faith is precious. And the reason why our faith is precious is because through our faith we get Jesus, we get salvation, and we get a glory that is so great 
that it causes angels to be awe-inspired. You could read those verses and pull those things out for yourself. But he says, this is why our faith is precious. We get Jesus, number one. And that's always number one. If we're in this thing for anything but Jesus first, we're not going to get what we're looking for, and we're going to ultimately fail. Jesus is what it's all about. I was in a church in Myrtle Beach a week ago, and the pastor of that church said something that almost made me get up and walk out. It wasn't a bad message altogether. <coughs> what he said that made me cringe and want to run is that he was talking about when we get to heaven, the responsibilities that we'll have. And this is what he said verbatim. He said, how many, he goes, everybody thinks that when we get to heaven, we're going to have a heart and we're going to stand around singing, holy, holy, holy. He said, how appealing is that? And when he said that, I wanted, I went, He's going to eat those words. Because I can guarantee you one thing. Is that when we get to heaven, the one thing that you're going to want to be doing is standing around his throne singing, holy, holy, holy. Anything else that we do in heaven isn't going to hold a candle to that. And we get Jesus when we get salvation. There is no higher thing to get. But we get salvation, and we also get the glory that causes angel all. But all of that is summed up in the person of Jesus. And Peter is essentially saying to us, listen, this process that God is performing in your life is worth it. It is worth every minute. And it's worth every struggle. And it's worth every tear. And it's worth every strain that you go through. Because what you get in Jesus Christ is incomparable to anything else. Well, we're out of time, and we did not a- accomplish our goal <laughs> this morning. Really? <laughs> uh, we could go a little bit further, but uh, you're, you're going to get cliff notes uh, a little bit. We'll, we'll go another minute or two. Um, what's important? What's important to Peter as a pastor and as one who's speaking to Christians, to you and I? about the process of God within our lives. What's important to him? Number one is that we would maintain, listen, that we would maintain the separation that we've been separated unto. That 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 separation would be maintained. Remember how I said before we've been sanctified and we've been set apart? Well, Peter says it's important that we maintain the separation. Notice in verse 13 of chapter 1. He says, wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which has called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. And that word just means lifestyle. For if you call on the Father, who without respect of persons judges according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning, there's that word again, being scattered, a stranger, the time of your pilgrimage, here in fear. Peter says, listen, it's important that you not mold your lives according to your former lusts of what you were before you were born again, but that you be separated unto the purpose of God within your lives. Notice in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, wherefore, laying aside, if we're going to be separated, he says, laying aside now all malice, all guile, all hypocrisy, 
and envies and all evil speakings. There's a lot there. You can meditate on each of those things and you'll unfortunately, for, for all of us, we'll see those things that they live inside of our hearts. But he says, lay those things aside and as newborn babes, desire instead the sincere milk of the word that you might grow thereby. If so be you tasted that the Lord is gracious. Then he goes on, look at verse 9 of chapter 2. He says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. And we are, aren't we? <laughs> that was the one thing I hated about becoming a Christian, is that I was going to become one of them. <laughs> one of us. And we are, we're weirdos. And that's a good thing. He says that we should show forth the praises of him who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Do you see the separation there? Out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Which were, that's old, in time past, not a people, but now, this is new, the people of God. Which had not obtained mercy, that's then, but now have obtained mercy, that's now. Dearly beloved, I beseech you, Peter, the strongest term of, of, of argument, of compelling, I beseech you, as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. See, we're not citizens of this world, therefore the ideals and lusts of this world must be far from us. Abstain from those things, they war against the soul. <coughs> Having your lifestyle honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak evil against you as evildoers, that they may by your good works, which, you shall, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. And then he uh, goes on and he talks about, in verse 21, uh, just look at it, he says, For even hereunto were you called, that because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that you should follow his steps. See it? That's what we'll conclude this morning. But that's what we're called unto. We're called unto a separation from this world. We've been separated unto God. And therefore, we should bear the testimony of those that are not citizens of this world. That's what he goes on to in chapter 3, by the way, if you read it. He talks about how we should then let that separation be known in the world. And then in chapters 4 and 5, he goes on to talk about how... Um, once that separation is known in the world, it's going to produce persecution because we're so different from the world. And if they see that separation, then they're not going to be our friends, but that we're then allowed to allow that suffering to do its work within our lives. And if, if I could just show you one more verse, look at chapter 5, verse 10, because this is where it ends. It's the end of the epistle, end of what Peter has to say. This is what God's doing in your life and where all these things lead. Uh, chapter 5, verse 10. He says, but the God of all grace, who has called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, make you perfect. That means complete. It doesn't mean perfection. Make you perfect. Establish, strengthen, settle you. Do you see where he's taking you? Taking us? Same as Peter. He's taking us from shifting sand to established, strengthened, and settled, set in our place. That's his process within our lives. We're born again. We're sanctified. That separation makes us like Christ. That separation causes persecution because we're letting that separation be known to the world. But those sufferings perfect us, and there's a strength and a quiet stability that exists within our lives because of the presence of the Holy Spirit within us. And Peter's our example. 
Look at what happened in his life. The day before his martyrdom, what was he doing? Sleeping like a baby. Unmoved. We're going to study the life of Abraham. We have a breakfast next week, but when we uh, commence in October, the first Saturday in October, two weeks from today, we're going to begin studying the life of Abraham. And the reason why we're going to study the life of Abraham is because the Bible says that he is the father of faith, of those that are saved by faith. He was the first one saved by faith. And that we are his children in that context, because we also are saved by faith. And here's the value of studying his life, is that if he's the father of what it means to walk with God by faith, then the children will also bear the same experience as the father. And so as we study the life of Abraham, what we're going to see is that we go through everything that he went through. God works in our lives in the exact same way that God worked in his life. He makes the same mistakes that we make. Everything that happened to Abraham happens also to us. And so as we study his life, we see the process and the work of God in making us what he wants to make us. And so my prayer is that as we study the life of Abraham throughout these next weeks and months, is that God would perform that same work in Amen? Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you this morning, Lord, for uh, this word. We ask you, Lord, that you would uh, um, that you would let the things that we've heard this morning grip us by the deepest part of the heart. That we would be your disciples, Lord. That we would serve you, Lord, with everything that we have. That we'd follow you, Lord, in your footsteps. And that there would be no element of the world or of our old former life in us at all. But, Lord, that you would be our all in all. It's our prayer and our desire that we be men of God in this day and age. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Any uh, thoughts, questions, comments? Kelly? It's amazing how God created such a vulnerable joy and then all that built us inside of it. You know, I was thinking when you were saying, oh man, the, the, the stuff that's you know, from within and how eventually you know, Christ takes that out and cleans it up you know, and, and actually joins it, you know, if you were able to, you know, clean that out before and see it all as one complete package, it is a beautiful thing. It's Jesus. Yeah, but when you think about it, you know, here you give, your wife gives birth to this beautiful child, and when you think of, <laughs> of that thought, it's like, oh, wow, yeah. deep inside, you know, like, yeah. the, the spirit part of it is so filthy, you know, yep. it's amazing. It is amazing. It is. And his power to cleanse it is amazing. You know, yes. To be able to do